going to do a two-part message. Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to be twice as long, um, but um, so that's a good thing, and I'm sure you all want to eat. I know I do. Um, but we're going to be sharing specifically on another part of the Lord's Prayer. If you remember, last week we talked about your kingdom come, your will be done, or thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This week we're focusing on give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. So that's pretty big because as I think about those lines, I'm drawn to the possibility that Jesus was actually teaching us to be really present in today, not to worry about the future or get caught up in our past. Because it says, give us this day or give us today our daily bread. And then for some odd reason, makes a full sentence by saying, and forgive us our debts. So we're talking about time here. We're talking about past, present, and future. And I love that because there are specific times in my life where debts have left a crippling impact on my today. Whether it's student loans, credit card debt, mortgages, you name it. Those things can leave a crippling impact on our lives. Can you relate? I remember when I got into college, I was a little bit worried, but you know, you don't really think as much about the future when you're starting college. You think, you know, I'm just going to get my credits in and it's going to be fine. need to get a good job, you know, do all the things I've been taught. Um, but then you walk out with a significant amount of debt and you wonder, oh man, how am I ever going to pay this off? 2005, I graduated. We're looking at 15 years of being graduated, and I'm looking at possibly another 15 years of paying student loan debt. <laughs> I don't know if we're ever going to pay that thing off. But you know what that feels like because debt isn't simply this thing that you feel and it switches on when you want it to. Debt's one of those things that are pervasive, right? It's kind of in the back of your mind all the time. It's kind of sprinkled on a lot of things you're doing. And it's frustrating because it controls us in some ways. And that's what debt does. It's a strong reminder of our past, a constant nuisance buzzing in our ears, reminding us that we've made mistakes, possibly, reminding us that we possibly have broken some promises. You know that kind of debt. But I found out as Mark was putting the notes together that debt in the Lord's Prayer can also be interchanged for sin. And if we can think about or imagine what it would be like to be debt-free from a financial standpoint, which is only temporary, can you imagine that today? The sigh of relief you would feel. And maybe you are debt-free and you know what that feels like. But those are temporary debts. And when we interchange the word debt for sin, boy, that's not temporary anymore. That's something that feels like it's permanent. The hiding, the shame, the condemnation. The things we don't want to share with anybody. The mistakes we've made. Those feel permanent. The power of guilt is pervasive. We can walk around for years carrying the baggage of that stuff, you know? I know I have in my life, and we don't even know it sometimes. But at some point, we can find ourselves completely estranged from a relationship with God and many times with others. Completely estranged. And at best, wondering if God has gone on vacation for a little bit because I can't hear you. And we have seasons like that. I can't hear you. I can't feel you. 
Why is this? But imagine with me a moment where you have this awareness or this realization in your life where you stop and you say, my eyes are open. What happened? Maybe the last year was a blur. And you look back and think, where, where did it all go? What was I doing this whole time? Why was I holding on to all of these things? Why was I simply in the wheel, the race, the American way? Why was I just striving? Is that all my life was for? How many relationships have I neglected because of my striving? Whether it's climbing the ladder or improving self or losing weight or eating better or you name it, that's the American way. Strive. And I got to tell you, when I see stuff on social media, though I love it for certain portions of my life, there are times where I do not want to see the self-improvement stuff anymore. (laughs) Because honestly, I've been taught to constantly strive for something better. And because of who I am, my striving is for acceptance and belonging and fitting in and making people proud of me. Well, honestly, I'm tired of that. Is there something wrong with striving? No. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But when it becomes something that takes power over your life and keeps you from living in peace, God, help me to cease the striving. Give me rest. Let me just be and know that you are God. I think it would be amazing the feeling of being completely debt-free in that temporary sense. But what if Jesus actually convinced us that all those things we hold on to, the shame, the condemnation, the hiding, the guilt, what if he convinced us that he can erase all of that too? And that we can actually live in today and stop worrying about tomorrow and stop holding on to the things we've done in the past. What kind of relief could we possibly have there? Because I think when Jesus prayed this prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts. That's what he wanted for us. He wanted us to seek that and pray for that. Lord, forgive our debts, and in turn, as we forgive our debtors, Lord, give us our today back. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to give others their today back. Don't we all want our today back? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we are worried about tomorrow. Maybe some of you aren't. And that would be the ultimate goal, wouldn't it? But if you're holding on to those things, because I know I do, I do it on a regular basis. Can you imagine what Jesus was praying there? I think Jesus thought and believed with all of his heart that our present holds the key to genuine peace and being able to live in it. Well, that's a challenge. But you know that awareness you get when maybe you've been off the path for a little bit, and then all of a sudden you're like, boom, what in the world? Why is the path over there? But this 
thing about God, God in all of his goodness, just says, I know. Get back on it. It's right there for you. It doesn't hold us against hold it against us. Can you imagine? It's like the voices you hear in your head. One says, the things you have done are permanent. They're pervasive. They have power over you. But then you've got the other voice that says, mm-mm, hold on a second. By my power, we can work through this together. You don't have to live in that anymore because the power of the Holy Spirit can break those chains in your life. Amen? This turning back, the Bible calls it repentance. And I do believe it's possible today. And I kind of believe, but know it's true that God places no conditions on us getting back on the path. I believe, and sometimes have to reconvince myself, that nothing can separate me from God's love. None of us needs to pay a penalty to get back in God's good graces. Christy's going to talk about that a little bit more in a second, but none of us have to pay that penalty, and I'm thankful for that. But I'm not always sure I believe it. Actually, I know I don't. I have a running list of things that separate me from God's love. I have a running list of things that separate me from God's acceptance and believing that God actually is trustworthy. I have a running list. Worry separates me from the, God, from, from the love of God. I am fully convinced that anxiety separates me from the love of God. Sometimes I'm fully convinced that depression would separate me from the love of God, that divorce would separate us from the love of God. That not going to church regularly is going to separate us from the love of God. But I know it's not true. I'm convinced that not praying all the time is going to separate me from the love of God. I'm convinced that not reading the Bible every day is going to separate me from the love of God. But I know that the path is right there. And when I know it, God just says, step right back on it. You have today. I have broken the chains of the past. Nothing can separate us from God's love. And I'll close with this. Paul had a different idea. Paul was fully convinced that nothing could separate us from God's love. And he says this, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries for tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. I say that again. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. What? Think about that. We're worried that depression or the thing we did yesterday that we're kind of embarrassed about is going to separate us from God's love, but he says not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. So what can separate us from God's love? Nothing. 
No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you're constantly convincing me. You're doing it over and over. Every day when I open my eyes, you're convincing me that I am not separated from you. Your mercies are new every morning. Nothing can separate me. Help me to turn my face back to you. Help me to repent when I need to. And also help me to cease the striving that looks for temporary acceptance and belonging. Because God, I know that the penalty is already paid. You have fully convinced us. It is finished. Help us to live into that. You've already broken the power of oppression in our lives. And I pray today that we can be as fully convinced as Paul was when he wrote that in Romans. In your heavenly name, amen. So this week, on Wednesday morning, when we were <clears throat> discussing through this topic, um, talking about the phrase, it is finished, and what Christ has done for us, my mind went to C.S. Lewis's um, The Chronicles of Narnia series, specifically The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I know Mark has talked about this book a lot, too, because it's one of his favorites. Mine, too. I grew up, my mom, reading these books to us. Um, and in this book, C.S. Lewis shares a story of four children, and they're all siblings, and they're the Pevensey children, and they go from youngest to oldest. It's Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter, and these children are going through a really hard time. Uh, their father's away at war, and London is under attack. It's during World War II, and they are sent to live with their uncle in the country, and maybe World War I, I don't remember. Oh no, I don't remember the details. Anyway, they go to live with their, their uncle in the country and he lives in this great big mansion and it's kind of mysterious. And one day um, they find this magical land at the back of the wardrobe in one of the scary rooms in their uncle's house. And there's a whole adventure that happens after that. But I think for me, Lewis's characters are so good and so well-developed, and I think partially it's because we can all relate to them in different ways. Um, Lucy, the, she's the youngest. She's the adventurer. She's wide-eyed. She trusts really easily. She's ready to set out uh, on adventure at any time. She's up for anything. Um, Edmund, he's a little moody, <laughs> and he thinks that life's not really fair and he wishes that he could be in charge, and he doesn't understand why his older siblings are, you know. And Susan, she's brave. She's kind of the mother hen. She's been taught to care for her siblings and make sure that they're protected. And Peter, responsible Peter, the leader, the eldest, so he knows that he needs to hold this whole thing together, right? So we can all relate to different aspects. We all have a little Lucy, Edmund, uh, Susan, and Peter in us. 
And as they enter this land called Narnia, they quickly realize that humans there are not easily, easily found. So um, there's some mythical creatures, there's lots of animals that live there, lots of weird characters, and the animals, when they meet these four siblings, they, they say, oh my gosh, you guys are the daughters of Eve, and you're the sons of Adam, and you, you're finally here, we've heard about you, we've heard legends about you, and you need to go help Aslan, here, we'll take you to him. So they take, it, they take the four siblings on a journey to go meet Aslan. And Aslan is the, the great lion, right? He is the king of Narnia. But Mark has talked about this before, that Narnia during this time has been under a season of perpetual winter. Not just winter, but winter with no Christmas. So it's just this dreary, cold place with no hope. And that's because of one of the characters called um, the White Witch. <laughs> and along their journey, at some point, the Pevensey children meet the White Witch, and three of the siblings understand instinctually that they need to stay away from her. But one of them, poor Edmund, uh, you know, he's a little at risk because he feels alone in the universe. So when she holds out these Turkish delights to him, he can't help it. I don't know what Turkish delights are, but when I, I remember my mom reading the book to me and thinking, I want a Turkish delight too. <laughs> so, um, and so the white witch, she, she sits very up straight in her throne, in her chair, and she knows, she has confidence in herself that she's able to win Edmund over. So she holds out this thing that she knows is his favorite somehow, magically, and he takes one and he chews it and she watches him chew it. And she knows that it's good. She knows that it's the best Turkish delight that's ever been made. And so she offers him another one and another one. And slowly but surely, he ends up being under her spell. And he doesn't realize it so much. He just thinks that he's able to finally have someone listen to him. You know, Peter, he's always running the show. I don't know why I have to sit in the back with Lucy. She's little and, you know, I'm brave too, just like Peter and... It's not fair. So he's mumbling these things to the witch, and she's saying, I know, I know. It must be hard to be you, Edmund. It must be really, really hard. And he's saying, it is. And I relate to Edmund. <laughs> I relate on some part to all, like I said, but I do relate to Edmund because I tend to worry. And in my life, I was stunted I think, I realized this a couple years ago, that I was stunted at age 18, 19 because of some things that happened in my life, because of choices that I made while I was away at college, because of things that I did. I thought, you know, I wasn't worthy of being this good person that I had set out to be originally, that I wasn't worthy to go down the path that God set before me anymore. So I personally relate to Edmund because when you start to think that way, when I started to think that way, I kind of started to hate myself. And when you don't like yourself, when you're not nice to yourself, when you're holding on to these dreadful parts of you that you would rather not anyone you know, see or talk about, but somehow you can't let them go, you start to hate people around you. Even if you don't hate them, you, you can't love them well if you can't love yourself or accept the love of God for you, you know? And so I relate to Edmund a little bit, and I always, I always couldn't stand it that I could relate to Edmund, you know? I always felt sorry for him, like, yeah, no one does listen to that guy. 
So he doesn't realize it, but he becomes an informant for this awful queen. And he ends up being, you know, he gives her all this information. Where is Aslan's army supposed to be, you know, hiding? She would ask, and he would somehow go find out. He'd talk to Mr. Beaver or to his brother or whatever, and he would find out, and he would come back, and she'd give him another Turkish delight. He would take it and eat it and tell her all about it. And when she was done with him, she had enough information, all she needed, eh, go to the dungeon. And he realized that, oh, no, I thought I was accepted here. I thought she was like my friend. I thought she was my provider and that I was going to be safe with her forever, but she's done with me now. She used me, and so he gets thrown into the dungeon. Well, eventually he, gets, he, he escapes the dungeon with some help, and um, he goes back to his brother and to his sisters, and he ends up at a base camp where Aslan's army has gathered at like the base of a mountain. And it's full of all these mythical creatures, right? Centaurs, big giant horse people and stuff. And Edmund is so relieved to be with his family again. And they accept him. Edmund, where have you been, right? They're, he's got a bloody lip. He's been thrown into the dungeon, so he's pale and weak, and he's got dark under his eyes. And he's so happy to be back there, but you can tell he's holding back. You can tell he's like, I love you too. <laughs> but he's like, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know that the witch knows where we are and that she's coming. I betrayed all of you. And one day... After Edmund kind of forgot, you know, he's kind of holding on to it still. You can tell, you can see it in his eyes. But he tried to just be with his siblings and with the other creatures and with some new friends. He forgot, kind of, that the witch was coming. And so when he saw her being held on that big um, throne that they carry, his little, her uh, helpers are like these awful creatures. I don't know if you've seen the movie at all, but it's a really good representation. I think Lewis would have been proud of the movie. Um, here comes this army of the witches, and he, they're carrying her right in front, you know. And Edmund kind of goes, oh, no. And he kind of is, like, slinking behind everybody. His brother and his sisters are ready, you know, with their arrows, with their knives, with, that, with swords, and they're ready to join Aslan's army. But Edmund is, you know, upset, obviously, because it's his fault. So the witch comes in. She's carried to the very front of where Aslan's tent is, his royal tent, his big one. And she gets set down, but she's still sitting in her chair with her back really straight up. And she's looking, and she calls out for Aslan, and he comes out of the tent. This great lion steps out, you know. His hair, his fur, his mane is blowing in the wind a little bit. And he looks at her, and he says something like, what is it? Why have you come? And she says, well, you have something of mine here. You know you have a traitor in your midst, right? And she calls out his sin. She calls out Edmund's sin and says, that disgusting little boy right there, he turned his back on you. I hope you know that right. And Aslan knows already. Aslan knows. So the witch says, you know what the penalty is for that, right? It's death. And I get to kill the boy. I get to kill that boy and take his blood. And Aslan says, come here. And so she stands up. She's very confident because she has, she believes in herself. She has great powers. So she's very confident, but she stands up a little timidly and walks to the tent because he's a great lion and he's the king. So she walks into the tent with him and they're in there for just a few minutes and Edmund's looking at his brother and looking at his sisters and the other creatures and just thinking like, oh, am I going to die? 
And Aslan and the witch step right out. And the witch looks really triumphant. She's got a smile on her face this time. She kind of has relaxed a little bit. She walks back over to where her throne is, and before she sits down, she turns around and says, how do I know that you're going to keep up your end of the deal? And Aslan doesn't need to say anything. He was sitting down at this point. He doesn't need to say anything. He stands up and he roars at her. And she goes, (gasps) and sits down. And the deal was that Aslan was giving his life for Edmund. And obviously, that's a story, a picture of what Christ has done and does do for us all the time. Christ says, no way am I going to let that little boy who didn't know what he was doing fully. No way am I going to abandon him. I know this place needs me. I know these people need me. But if I have to lay down my great body and die for that little boy, then I will. And so the queen sits down and she's carried off a little embarrassed. And Aslan, Lucy, Lucy, little perceptive Lucy, turns around and looks up there and sees some sadness in Aslan's eyes, you know. Everyone's cheering because, ha-ha, the witch, go away with your tail between your legs. But Aslan looks a little sad. And three days later, what happens? But his body is laid down on the great stone table. And his body is broken, and his blood is poured out for Edmund. And on Thursday night at the prayer night, we read a scripture where Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I love that, and I have to hold on to that scripture because my, Chrissy, Chrissy's yoke, Chrissy's burden, my yoke is hard and my burden is heavy. <laughs> and I need to cling to that truth that Jesus is saying, Chrissy, My yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? There are scriptures that say, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. I love that Andy brought up the word repentance earlier today because I was listening to a a preaching about the word repentance um, in Hebrew about a year ago, maybe, And the Hebrew word is teshuva, teshuva. And have you ever, you know, you've heard the word eureka. When someone has a good idea, they, it's like an old-fashioned way, eureka, and they put their hand in the air, and they have, I have an idea. And it's always, there's always an exclamation point following that that word eureka, right? And so it's, it's the same thing with the word teshuva. Teshuva means, oh my gosh, the path is over there. Where was I? I Somehow, I am four miles off the path. I can't even hardly see it anymore. I don't even remember what it feels like. I don't remember what it looks like. But I know that I've wandered off of it. And praise God, I am aware of that now because I can get back on. And that's what teshuva is supposed to mean. But I think throughout our lives, we think of the word repentance and we carry it around with these big heavy chains and repentance becomes one of those 
maybe ball and chain that we just drag around. Oh, gosh, I'm off the path again. What an idiot. Why do I do this? You know? But it was never meant to be a ball and chain. Teshuva. With that exclamation point. I am off the path, but I can get back on, praise God. I've talked about this a little bit before, and I'm just going to close with this. But my, my grandpa, um, he passed away, I believe, back in 2011. And he passed away of cancer. And by the time he was on hospice, and it was his last days, um, he had lost a lot of weight. And so his, his, his watch that he always wore um, if he would raise his arms up, it would fall down to his elbow. And he was, he was a pastor his whole life, and um, I think he had one last day in him. He had a few days where he was really quiet and didn't say anything. He was resting a lot. And he had this one last day when his friend came in the door to see him. His friend was an old doctor that lived in his town in northern Minnesota. Um, and this friend, the doctor, shared it at his funeral, and I'm so glad that he did. I grabbed the hymnal in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> at my grandpa's old church, and I wrote this quote in it, and I shut that hymnal, and I took it home with me. And I, list, I, have to, I say this quite often, actually. So if you've never had anyone say this to you, I, I'm saying it to you now, okay? He raised his hands up, and he said with one, it was like his last sermon, and he said, if we knew how much he loved us, and his watch fell down to his elbow, and he said, we would all run to him. If we knew how much he loved us, we would all run to him. And I believe that's the truth. I believe that's the truth of it. <laughs> that's the exclamation point. As we finish the service and go about our week... Uh, I just pray that we could all dare to believe it. <laughs> I'm going to pray really quick. Heavenly Father, help us to believe it. Could it be true? That if we all knew how much you loved us, we would run to you. No inhibitions, no ball and chain, no guilt weighing us down. Thank you for what you've done for us, that we could just see it. In your name we pray, amen.